I am grateful to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a man of violence. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But for that very reason I received mercy, so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience, making me an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Forty years ago, the bishop who ordained me, both deacon and elder, was coming to his retirement. Uh, I called his secretary one day and asked if there was any chance Gail and I might could take Bishop and Mrs. Paul Martin to dinner uh, to tell him personally how much he had meant to the two of us. She said she could arrange that, and I asked, what is his favorite restaurant here in Houston? She told me, and I made a reservation for the date she had given me. We had a wonderful evening with Bishop and Mrs. Martin, and when I drove them back to their residence and jumped out of the car, opened the door for Mrs. Martin, the bishop came around the car and said, I brought you a present. And it was a book written by three great German theologians, Feine, Bame, Kummel. These three great German scholars had written the Sitzenleben, the setting in life for all 27 books of the Christian scriptures. And the bishop said to me, don't ever be afraid to tell your people what you know is true. In Fina Bame Kummel's book, they say the first letter to Timothy the second letter to Timothy, the letter to Titus, were not written by Paul, and they weren't written to Timothy and Titus. Subsequent scholars, like Dr. Joette Bassler, Dr. Hans Konzelman, Dr. James Dunn, and others say that's absolutely correct. These three were written a generation after Paul Timothy and Titus. They are written by the same author, we believe. They are called the pastoral epistles, but we do not know who that person was. It was a person who loved Paul, who admired him greatly, who was saying a generation later, what would Paul say to the church if he were still living? The reason scholars are convinced Paul did not write this is, there are several of these reasons. One is, that it's not Paul's working vocabulary. You and I all have a working vocabulary. We know far more words than we use day by day. But today, scholars can feed into great computers all the Greek words that appear in one of the letters of the Bible, and they can tell you that the working vocabulary of these three epistles is not the same as the undisputed letters written by Paul. The Greek words used are quite different. Second, the circumstances being addressed in the three epistles are not those of Paul's time. Paul died in the mid-60s under the persecutions of Nero. 
The situation being addressed here did not occur until the mid-90s, perhaps as late as 110. So a whole generation after Paul, after Timothy, after Titus, someone is writing in Paul's name as if he were writing to these two because the churches receiving these letters would pay very close attention if they thought perhaps Paul was writing something recently now discovered when in fact probably not. These three are holy writ. We're going to spend several Sundays on them. There are very important things to be said here. I want you to hear along with me what this author had to say to that church that came into being uh, roughly 70 to 80 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Number one, I'm going to start today with the last verse that we read together because I believe it picks up right where we left off last Sunday. If you recall, last Sunday we were dealing with the letter to the Hebrews, and it ended by saying, Therefore we come before our God with gratitude, reverence, and awe. Remember? Reverence is defined by Webster as something set apart, a feeling for something set apart, something sacred. And the word awe is defined by him as a sense of reverence tinged with fear. That's what it says in my big dictionary. All right, so a feeling for something sacred, something set apart, a reverence tinged with fear, which has to do with acknowledging the bigness of God. So this very last verse of our reading for today is about that. To the one God, immortal, invisible, to that great one. I hope you read our United Methodist Reporter. Sherry Goodwin does such a great job with that for us every week, as do the editors of United Methodist Reporter. Uh, one of the columns that I look at week after week is the one written by Dr. Michael Hahn. Dr. Michael Hahn is head of sacred music now for our Perkins School of Theology, Southern Methodist University. He was not there when I was there. He came later, but I've met him on several occasions and I've admired his work. Week after week, he writes a whole column about one of the hymns in your hymn book. All kinds of hymns, but I find the articles interesting. He recently wrote about Will Thompson. Will Thompson was born in 1847 in this country. He was 13 years old when the Great Civil War began. As a young adult, he went to the Boston Conservatory of Music. He wanted desperately to study in Europe. So finally he had enough money to board passage on a ship, went to Europe, ended up at the University at Leipzig, where he studied. There was a movement in Germany just before the turn of that century, a movement to talk about the imminence of God, the closeness of God. And so Will Thompson became a hymn writer. And many of his hymns are about the closeness of God. You remember this one? Jesus is all the world to me. I want no better friend. Remember? Let me read you a few more words from that. He is my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him I would fall. When I'm sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. But Michael Hahn says, John Wesley had trouble with that hymn. Had he still been living? Because John Wesley thought we should emphasize more the transcendence of God, the bigness of God, God who's large enough to cast billions of stars out into the heavens. Okay? 
In fact, he quarreled sometimes with his own brother Charles about the way Charles described intimacies with God. Example, one of the hymns of Charles that we know very well is, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my... Charles wrote, Dear Redeemer's praise. John said, Dear, that's not a proper word. Charles, not to speak of God. And he talked Charles into changing it to the word great. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, not my dear Redeemer's praise. And so Dr. Hahn in his article was talking about how we need probably both kinds of hymns, some of those which stress the imminence, the closeness of God. He said it's fine to sing, Jesus is all the world to me. I want no other friend. If you will follow it with immortal, invisible, God only wise so that you speak about the closeness of God and then you talk about the bigness of God because God is both close and remote, reverence tinged just a little bit with fear because of the bigness of God. Number two, second I underlined in that passage today this part. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance. Now, our scholars believe that whoever it was that wrote 1 Timothy also wrote 2 Timothy, also wrote Titus. And in these three epistles, we have this expression used five times. Exactly the same words in Greek. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance. The five statements that follow are not identical. But what he's saying is that this many years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, some things are generally accepted by those who follow him. And he lists five of them in all three of the writings. There are five. This is the first one. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is a keystone or a foundation stone, whichever way you want to look at it. It either finishes off the building or it's the very rock upon which the building is built. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But how do we Methodists look at that, this business of being a sinner? Is that where we start? Now, Donald Haynes also writes a very fine column, I think, in the United Methodist Reporter. And right now he's writing a series of them on what Methodists believe. I mentioned him to you a couple of weeks ago. He was talking about a, a festival they had at his church to try to involve families with young children. And there was somebody from a very conservative church nearby handing out little cards asking, Are you saved? Are you saved? Have you been saved? How one of the women was upset about that, you remember. Because that's not exactly the language we Methodists normally use. What kind of language do we use? Well, John and Charles Wesley liked the word disease. But English folk do not always divide syllables the way we do. For example, just the other night I heard an Englishman say on television something about the controversy in London. A controversy in London. Where you and I would say controversy. Okay? So they don't always put their syllables exactly the way do we do, nor the accent marks where we do. And so the Wesleys chose to write the word disease, D-I-S, little dash, E-A-S-C that we are sick if we are not rightly related to God, if we are not rightly related to each other. We're sick. 
we are well only when we are rightly related to God and rightly related to each other. Persons who are well, who have been saved from their sickness to wholeness, are those who know the only way we can be rightly related to God is that we trust that God loves us, that God wants good to come to us, that God grieves when bad things are happening to us, that just because that's who God is, that He loves every baby ever birthed, all the ones into whom He puffed His own breath and made them to be something like Him, he wants good to come to all of us, males and females, different colors, different shades of hair, tall, short, all kinds of folks, everybody. God wants good to come to us. If we trust that that is so, then we stand right with God. If we receive that gift of knowing He wants good to come to us, knowing every day you wake up, God wants good to come to me. If something bad's happening to me, God is not happy and we are rightly related to each other when we're willing to put ourselves out for the well-being of another, when we're willing to go out of our way to help something good come to somebody else, then we stand right with them. If we want good to come to them and we'll put ourselves out to help good come to them. So the Wesleys talk about sinners, that is, diseased folk who are not rightly related and that God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus so that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life and a few verses later in John it says he came into the world not to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved and so the first lection you heard read this morning was about Jesus stories of people losing things and looking frantically until they found them and how thrilled they were when something that had been lost was found. Whether it's a coin or a sheep, more importantly, a person who's been lost and now is found. One of the great Methodist hymn writers of uh, long ago was Fanny J. Crosby. Some of you who sang growing up out of that Cokesbury hymn book. Remember a number of her hymns in there. And Fanny J. Crosby wrote one called Rescue the Perishing, Care for the Dying. You remember? And then it says, Tell the poor wanderer, that sheep that's wandered off, tell the poor wanderer a Savior has died. That he who knew no sin took onto himself the sins of all the rest of us. Come home. Come home, come home to God. So we too believe this is a saying, sure and worthy of full acceptance, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Number three, this author then says that we see in Paul's life the patience of God. Paul was tutored by one of the great rabbis of that first century, Gamaliel. Uh, he grew up a person of faith in the one true God. But there came a time when he heard about a real person whom some were claiming to have embodied the very presence of God. And Paul didn't get that. No, 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 he said. Yes, this one was the Messiah. No, he said. And he was right about this. There was nothing in the Hebrew Scriptures 
about a crucified Messiah. Messiah was going to come and chase away the enemies and set all things right for God's people, the Israelites. And so Paul didn't see it. He didn't get it. He stood there when young Stephen was stoned to death because he did get it that God had in fact been present in Jesus in a way he never had been in any other person before. So Paul set out from Jerusalem to go to what is today the capital city in Syria, of course, to Damascus, to seek out others who were saying that Mary's child Jesus, all grown up, crucified, had been made alive again. Paul just could not see that. And he was to rout out those who were saying such things. On the way, as you recall, he was struck down, blinded, he said, and in his deepest heart heard, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why? So God had been very patient with Saul. Now he was very impatient. It's time for you to make a decision. It's time for you to make a decision. Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the long-awaited Messiah of God or not? And Paul, with further instruction, you remember, from two Christians in Damascus, became convinced Jesus was in fact the long-awaited Messiah and that he was being sent by God to be witness to pagan, heathen Gentiles about Israel's God who had now revealed himself in Jesus Christ. You know the name Ruth Bell? Ruth Bell was born the same year as my mother. But my mother was born in San Augustine, Texas, and Ruth Bell was born in China. Ruth Bell's mother and father were, were medical uh, personnel, now, working at a Presbyterian hospital about 100 miles north of Shanghai when Ruth was born, the youngest of their five children. When she grew up, teenage years, uh, they saw to it that she could get back to the United States, where they had come from, uh, to have education. And she went to Wheaton College in Illinois. While she was at Wheaton, she met a young man she thought was so tall and handsome, good-looking guy, and the two of them were married. His name was Billy Graham. And she and Billy Graham had five children, as her mother and father had had. They were married 64 years before Ruth died, just a little over two years ago, June 2007. She was 87 years old. But Ruth had written when she was 50, 37 years before what she wanted on her headstone. When she was 50, back in 1970, she had written a devotional in the Decision magazine put out by the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And in this devotional, she had talked about riding down the highway one day with Billy when they came to some construction. And it seemed to go on forever. But when they got to the end of it, she saw a sign that she said she would like to have duplicated on her gravestone. It said, end of construction. Thanks for your patience. End of construction. Thanks for your patience. Patience from others. Even more importantly, God's patience in nurturing us along, nurturing us along, wanting us to become all that we were created to be. Number four, 
you're still looking at your Bibles, number four here is right near the beginning. He said, I received mercy. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. And grace means unmerited love, something you haven't earned. It's just a gift from God. Before we can do anything for God, God already loved us. When I got to baptize most of you when you were babies right here at the altar of this church, you hadn't done anything for God yet, but God already loved you. You couldn't even talk and say you believed in God, and God loved you anyway. Because that's who God is. God's mercy, God's grace just overflows for us. God wants good to come to us. Remember about 18 months ago when I got back from our general conference of the Methodist Church down in Fort Worth, Texas, one of the things I told you about was my hearing a children's choir from Africa. I was moved by that experience. Uh, the last two quadrennia, Oklahoma had drawn seats way in the back of the convention centers. In Cleveland, in Pittsburgh, we were so far back you needed binoculars to tell which bishop was presiding at any given time. But suddenly in Fort Worth, Oklahoma got a good seat. All of our delegation were right up close to the front. And we came to this particular moment in that two-week period when they were about to introduce this children's choir. We had not seen them yet. They had not entered the convention center where we could see them. But we were told that all of these children were orphans, that all of their mothers and fathers had been killed in the terrible tribal wars that occurred there in Africa. And these little children had hidden. They had run for their lives. And gradually one after the other had been found. And they were brought to a Methodist home where they were fed three good meals a day where they were bathed and given clean clothes, where they were taught, and where they were taught about God as well. We want you to meet these children of yours, we were told. And the curtain parted, and in they came. They must have been about your age, I would guess. Maybe third grade, fourth. Precious children. Uh, black, black little faces. Uh, big, beautiful eyes. Uh, they were dressed all the same in bright, bright colored uniforms. And as the music played, uh, big organ and piano there, they came running in, orderly, running in, in order, and started to sing. And how they could move and how they could sing to this song. The crowd went absolutely wild. And of course, the purpose was so we'd all give more money to keep this wonderful home in Africa going. Well, recently I was reading an article written by Eric Feldman. And Eric belongs to a different denomination, but also has a home in Africa. There is in Burundi, and he was writing about a children's choir that had been brought here for their denomination to give more money to their home in Burundi. And the story was very much the same. He went on to say that they were told, the children in their home, had been told by those who had murdered their parents, nobody knows you now. There's nobody for you anymore. Nobody knows your name. Nobody cares. You better get out of here or we'll do the same to you. And so they had fled. And they were found one at a time, sometimes two or three, hiding, hiding. And they were brought to this wonderful home where they had three meals a day, clean clothes, a good bed, safety, schooling. 
They had come to America to sing, these children from Burundi. But then Eric Feldman said, as I was listening to all this, I kept remembering the Gospel of John. In John's account of Easter Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene goes early, first of all, to the tomb. She finds the stone rolled away and the body gone. She rushed to the upper room where the disciples were spending the weekend. She pounded on the door, told them what she had seen, and Peter and John ran back to the tomb. Uh, they went in, looked, and then went back to the upper room. Mary was left standing there all by herself. There was somebody else there. She thought he was the gardener looking after this beautiful place that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea until he spoke. And what he spoke was simply her name, Mary. And she turned and wanted to grab hold of him, not yet... Don't touch me, he said. Don't touch me. I've not yet ascended to my father. Eric Feldman says the thing that turned her was the one who knew her name. And he said when these precious children came bounding out onto that stage and started to sing, they were singing, Christ is risen, Christ is risen, and he knows my name. Amen.